duck, 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 duck to dolphin. Hi there, Michelle. Hi there, eavesdroppers. Hello. Welcome back. How are you? Well, I'm good. You're in the robe. And I wonder what the eavesdroppers out there are wearing right now. What are you wearing, guys? Write in. Tell us. We love it when you write in. (laughs) Tell us what you're wearing. And I will say, I actually deliberately put the robe on. It's a recording robe now. fair enough. I've decided. It needs to be the merch. That's the merch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'll do a little embroidery eavesdrop and patch. On the uh, the pocket, the top pocket. <laughs> That's a great idea. I know it. <laughs> so uh, I've got some recommendations before we launch into things. And by the way, Michelle, you're Michelle. And you are Geordie. I know. And you're listening to Eavesdropping the Podcast, yeah. and, which makes you an eavesdropper. That's what they're doing. G'day, eavesdroppers. It's a noun and it's a verb. Is that right? I should know this, but... You should. I've had a glass of wine, so don't ask me those oh, things. blimey. Did you see my music stories on um, Benjamin Cartel's YouTube channel? Not yet. I'm very excited to what? watch it. Well, no, I wanted to sit back maybe with a glass of champagne. I wanted... It's eight minutes long, Michelle. It's not going to be like a eight big old... Minutes. Come on, everyone. Viewing party. Come on, everyone. Sit round. No, it's just eight minutes of your time. That's all he's asking. That's all I'm eight asking. Eight minutes. Yes. Oh, my God. I can't even like pop the it's cork. A very, it's a short <laughs> story. Okay. No. I thought it was going to be like an hour. I thought, oh, I've got to settle in for this with a nice glass or something. No, I couldn't stretch that story out for an hour, Michelle. It's a good one. Although I've dined out on it for about 20 years. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, listeners, well, then where have you been? I did warn you a few weeks ago that there was going to be a Benjamin Cartel Music Stories on YouTube, which is a friend of ours who's a musician and he does wonderful fan-based music stories. So he's got friends, he's got himself talking about the first time he saw a gig or when his friends got invited to Nicholas Cage's for dinner, various great stories, and it's a lot of fun. Oh. And he's asked me to do my adamant story which is also over on patreon so it is you eavesdroppers get double dippings of the adamant double when's adamant whammy. gonna hear it i know i want when's him he, to hear when's it when's he gonna call <laughs> and we're waiting <laughs> call us absolutely he's got the number so yes that's a little um heads up for you guys to please go over and support benjamin cartel's music stories youtube channel please all sign up He's fine. I might pop that on the uh, on the next episode the show links. notes. Yes, we won't just save that for Patreon Thanks. because we want everyone to go and watch Geordie chit chatting about Adamant. Absolutely. I'm wearing a Lame tracksuit that day as well. So even if it's if you don't know who Adam and the Ants are, you've got to tune in for my Lame tracksuit. I need to see that. I can't even begin to imagine. Is it gold? Filmed over the festive season. No, it's a steel grey Lame. Oh, it's very stylish like a scourer oh. like a washing up scourer that's how I felt that day I mean I felt quite glam and then I went to my sister-in-law's and partied on in that tracksuit yes. and it got some pulls you know it pulls doesn't it oh does it there's a lot of pulls and oh, like ladders in I it I thought you're gonna ladders. say it went rusty like a steel wall <laughs> that will be next so Michelle I wanted to make some recommendations because I have been watching the television tell me I'm excited because I have one for you too Okay, well, it's another Australian number. Ooh. I'd heard about it for some time. I resisted. I don't know why. I think it's because I thought, oh, husband won't be interested in that. But he's happily looking at his phone while I'm watching this. So that's fine. We've come Perfect. to an understanding. It's the Newsreader, which is Australian. It's set in 1986 at the moment in a newsroom. Mm. A la our other favourite show from years gone by. The, the hour. hour. Do you remember that Of course one? I remember. With Ben Whishaw. It was incredible. And Romola Garay. Is that how you say it? Romola Garay. Romola Garay? I don't know. But I wrote to the BBC when that finished and I said, how could you? You need to make how another series. Fuck? You can't fucking leave us hanging. Is he dead? Is he alive? They left us hanging. Oh, my Heartbroken. God. And it would have been one of those things. Maybe they did the right thing because if they'd come back and said, Ben Wishaw reappears. He didn't actually die after all. It would have been a bit, oh, come on, guys. He was only brain dead and only for five minutes. <laughs> well, I wanted more. I wanted more of that show. I thought mm. it was oh God, yeah. one of the right best things it. on the BBC, on the Beebs. Peter Capaldi 
Anna Chancellor, their little thing that was going on about having given up a, a love child. Yes. That was exciting. Now, sorry, I've segued. You have. So people, if you haven't seen The Hours, go back and watch that if you can find it, BBC mm. from years ago. Newsreader. So it's set in 1986 and it's similar to The Hours, but the, sorry, The Hour was kind of like the the origins of... 40s, was it 40s? 50s. 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 50s, 60s, yeah. And this is more 80s. And they cover such newsworthy stories as Lindy Chamberlain, the Challenger explosion. And it's about a newsroom. It's kind of like, you know, prime news mm. channel <laughs> with traditionally men. But now there's this sexy kind of Yana Went, if you remember her. Yes, of course. Yana's Vent. Everyone always made Yana's jokes about Vent. Yana's Vent. She was a very sexy but very serious uh, reporter. And They've got a lady who's slightly, I'm going to say unhinged. It doesn't sound like a nice description, but she has obviously got some trouble in her past. She's played by an actress called, she was in Mindhunter and I can't remember her name. Bloody hell. Anna Torf, that's her name. I worked in an Australian newsroom. Did you? Yes. Channel 10 in the news library. Is that the cheapy one? They're all cheap. If it's not the ABC, less, they're all cheap. glamorous? <laughs> not, oh, okay. It was not a glamorous job. The Seven Network was quite glam, I yeah. thought, because it was Sydney. Ten was like a bit cheap. Oh, sorry. I worked in the cheap <laughs> library, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> what shows did they have? I don't know. I was working in the news library, so I was handling all of the news as oh. it happens oh. kind of thing. I mean, now news just online and on your phone. Yeah. And in your face, yeah. The newsroom, it sounds interesting. So, yes, it it's not called the newsroom. It's called the newsreader. And it's Sorry. fabulous. And there is one guy that both my husband and I are quite taken with. He plays gay cameraman Tim. Short, curly hair, big moustache. He's openly gay in the show. Looks fantastic in double denim. And it's an actor that my daughter loves because he was in those mermaid shows and monkey. His name's Chai Hansen. <gasps> Paddy and I have both said, yep, we would both go there. That's your hall pass mm-hmm. right there? Yep. <laughs> For a three-way hall pass? I don't want to know. Uh, it's a bit saucy, a bit too saucy, actually. That's not representative of our lives. Absolutely not. Not that exciting. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. <laughs> it's just we were so taken with his glamorous kind of like open shirt down to the tummy almost Ooh. and curly hair and he's very handsome he's it's just a very exotic looking man he's gorgeous wow i have to check it out just for that yeah amazing that's my little wreck one and only well i've been watching the traitors oh, season two the english one or the american one the english one okay. claudia winkleman and her shiny 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 hair yeah. and her i don't know princess margaret meets the queen clothes oh highland glam highland glam she's looking great in her outfit wonderful i've been hooked in again because i was hooked in on season one turns out i won't reveal names but did you watch season one i watched the american one with alan cummings oh as the host okay Mm. didn't watch that no i watched season one of the british one turns out a girl that i know is shagging a guy from season one lucky girl is she lucky? I'm oh. not sure she's super into that. It's a tenuous claim to fame, isn't it? It is a bit tenuous claim to fame. However, the traitors can recommend it. Andreas hated it. wasn't enough of a psychological twist for him. But it's all about... I mean, the guy in it, he's an actual it's about, psychopath. It's about lying. The way he can and lie. manipulating, isn't it? I don't know if we should be promoting that, Claudia Winkleman. No. And look, I will just say, yeah. I know we've had a lot of travel pussy talk in mm, the past weeks. No, we're not going there again, are we? Well, the thing is, Jen oh my said... God. Oh, what's, what's with all the travel that? pussy chat? And I said, oh, yeah, mum, I know it's kind of gross, but we've got to start with the travel pussy chat. But it is funny. And she went, hmm. And I was like, so it's not funny. You do know what a travel pussy is, don't you, mum? And there was silence. And I said, huh? mum, you don't think it's a companion cat, do you? <laughs> she thought it was a pet. <laughs> she thought it was a, take a on fake holiday. pet. <laughs> a fake pet. But we spelled it out, Jen. Lost mushy. You can warm it up, I guess, with warm water. More realistic, as you said. <laughs> like week. a cat-shaped hot water bottle. When I kind of explained, she said, "Well, how do you how do you use that on the train?" And I said, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and she said, "Well, you know, if you're travelling on the bus or the train, how do you use what? that?" 
And I said, Mum, use it in a hotel room in the privacy of your own room. Or in the cab of your 10-ton truck. Oh, oh my I think God. that's really what it's meant for on yes. the road. So for anyone who has been confused, as Jen Let's just has clear it up been- for you. <laughs> and that's a wrap on the travel pussy. And that's that done. Okay, thanks, Jen. You always do make us smile. You really do. What about all the penis talk about when she watched Saltburn? Have you seen that yet? I haven't watched it yet. I only just watched oh, the first watch five it, minutes. I'd love to know what you think. I haven't watched watched it more than the first five minutes. I haven't had time. What with the traitors? Fair enough. Telerex for sure. Telerex, one more. I'm watching telly. You're watching telly. We're watching telly on the telly. It's the television. So, Michelle, listen, today I am going to put my serious hat on for a second. Massive trigger warning from the off. We are going to be discussing suicide, suicidal ideation. Okay, so anybody who feels that they have been affected by this, please either don't listen if you find it's going to be triggering for you or if you feel that you need someone to talk to I have got some numbers here for you to call but I've only got the three main countries of our listeners so far I know we've got Germans I know we've got Canadians and other countries but I've only got the number for America which is NAMI N-A-M-I and it's call or text 988 Samaritans in the UK, 116123 and Lifeline is in Australia, 131114. So please go ahead and use those numbers. They're crisis numbers. People are on the other end of that line whenever you need it. Now back to the show, because this week, Michelle, I am talking about the tragic and talented Elliot Smith. Oh my God, XO, one of my favorite albums of the 90s. I thought you'd be interested. I remember you loving his music. Yeah, really. Wow, I'm actually excited. I mean, I always am, but super excited to know what you uncover about this because I don't know too much about it. Right. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you were right up in it in the 90s. Was it 90s and 2000s when his records were coming out and he was all the rage and everybody loved his music? I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. And I got all my stuff from a Guardian article by Alexis Petridis from 2004. So if you haven't heard of Elliot Smith, unlike Michelle and I, he was a singer songwriter of folky slightly miserable tunes would you say yeah they were very kind of like sweet sounding but the content was dark wasn't it not always you know put it this way it wasn't barbie girl certainly not that no he was so beloved of the indie set back in the mid to late 90s and he had his fame cemented because he featured on the soundtrack to the award-winning 1998 film goodwill hunting which starred robin williams and the then up-and-coming affleck and damon i've written ben affleck Matt Damon. I almost forgot their first names. <laughs> <laughs> and he was actually nominated for an Oscar himself for the song Miss Misery, which was in the film. And as a result, he was later known as Mr. Misery for his forlorn lyrics and tragic album cover shots. Yeah. He was known to suffer from depression and he had addiction issues and alcoholism. And he was also known for suicidal ideation, hence the warning at the top of this show. And his friends would often hear him threaten to end his life. In fact, in 1997, while he was recording the album Either Or, did you have that one? Probably, but EXO was my top. Yeah, I liked that one. I think it was that one. Is that the one? That's EXO. So when he was recording the album Either Forward Stroke Or, he began to get so disillusioned with his work that he ended up drinking heavily and he jumped off a cliff in North Carolina, miraculously landing on a tree that broke his fall. And after an unsuccessful intervention by friends at a Chicago hotel, he then ended up in an Arizona psychiatric hospital. Fuck. Yeah. I mean, there's lots more stories like that. It was quite shocking to uncover, Michelle. He was an icon back in his hometown of Portland, Oregon. Oregano's I've written here. Oregon <laughs> in the late 90s. And he was a big guy on the post-grunge scene I suppose you could call it yeah he was but this in Portland Oregon this is where he got himself a raging drug and alcohol habit and at the same time writing all these beautiful songs and gaining attention from the world's music press but he wasn't really impressed by fame or success and when his 1998 album XO that's the one you're talking about isn't it yeah yeah 
sold 400,000 copies. He said, I threw myself into it because it seemed to make my friends happy. I don't particularly like hanging out with famous folks much because their lives are too weird. Yeah. Fair point. Then he moved to New York City in the late 1990s and he told his friends in Portland before he left that it would probably be the last time that they'd see him because he would probably kill himself. Oh my God. What do you do with that information as a friend? Those people who knew him usually would know that this was just his dark sense of humour or brutal honesty. Or they'd heard it so many times before from him and he's still there. So they probably just perhaps didn't take it seriously. Well, there's that. And there's also, there has been various interventions Mm. as well made by friends. Mm. So probably just living with it. But don't forget, he was in his late 20s, early 30s, I think at this point. So, you know, it's live fast, die young Mm. and rock and roll. Mm. And at this point also, he started using crack and rumours also swelled that he was becoming useless on stage. He'd forget his own lyrics and nod off on stage between songs. A bit like, what's his name from Led Zeppelin did Mm. when he was full on into the heroine, Jimmy Page. Yeah, but also Amy Winehouse too. Towards the end, you know, before she tried to clean herself up, she could barely even stand up on stage, couldn't remember anything slurring. So at one point he moved to Silver Lake in Los Angeles and his neighbours there said that they would see him wandering the streets with a blanket over his shoulder, muttering to himself. So this to me sounds all pretty loosey-goosey stuff, like a man in deep pain. Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. And then he had another album called Figure Eight, which during the recording of, the producer, David McConnell, had him on suicide watch for the whole recording. How do you work like that? Obviously, they must have thought he was a musical genius and there was a lot of money riding on it as well because, you know, he was signed to a major label. But there was a spin article from 2004 that said he demanded to be released from his deal with the DreamWorks label, which he was signed to, after the figure eight sessions proved to be a disaster. And when they refused to break his contract, he'd said publicly that he would opt out of his obligations to DreamWorks by taking his own life. Oh, fuck, that's drastic. And then in 2002, it was announced by him that he had finally kicked the drugs with the help of a treatment called neurotransmitter restoration and was at work on his latest album, provisionally entitled From a Basement on a Hill. And this may have been in part thanks to his year-long relationship with another musician, a woman called Jennifer Chiba, who was in a punk band called Happy Ending. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. Well, he had toured with that band and they were his support act. I think he must have taken an interest in the band before they were together, he and her, because he was paying their expenses and producing their debut single. And they had both been friends for a while before getting together. Nice. He had also established something called the Elliot Smith Foundation, which was to benefit abused children. And he started that along with his drugs counsellor and his previous girlfriend, Valerie Deering, which he and Jennifer Chiba continued to work on. And he planned to donate all of the profits from this next record from A Basement on the Hill. Okay. So he sounds like he's kind of come through the other end. All the records are sold. The drugs have been put on hold. He's in a nice relationship and he's recording a new album. And actually talking about Happy Endings and their debut single, there's a weird connection to my band from the 90s, actually. Max Tractor. We were briefly managed, very briefly, by a man called Sean Organ, who had this fanzine and it turns out record label called The Org. He was the guy that was going to send us on tour with the Dandy Warhols, but we didn't end up going on tour with them. What a shame. What a shame. That would have been fun. Yeah. And he signed Happy Ending and he was planning to release that single that Elliot Smith had been working on. But he said that the sessions were tense Mm. and he told the Guardian article that I used as my reference today. Without wanting to speak ill of the dead, Elliot Smith wasn't the easiest person to work with because of his problems. Apparently, Michelle, it was very difficult to work with Elliot as a producer because he kept remixing the single and then one of the girls from the band ended up breaking into his studio and taking the tapes and sending them to Sean right at Org Records and then it really kicked off apparently so this is what Sean's saying people were yelling I was like let's just shelve it and he goes on to say that Elliot Smith was the worst thing to happen to happy ending oh my god that's quite extreme not so happy ending no exactly what's the name happy ending I said happy ending sorry I sound like a silly old woman don't I well we all know what a happy ending is yes would you like to explain it to Jen though no it's okay (laughs) 
Jen, call me. I'll explain. Oh, I bet Jen could teach us a thing or two. I don't want to know. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Sorry, this is quite sad, this next part. Sorry for the okay. laughing segue because on October 21st, 2003, it was said that Elliot Smith and Jennifer Chiba at their home in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, had a terrible argument. Apparently, he threatened suicide, but Chiba just ignored him and locked herself in the bathroom until she heard a scream. Oh. And she came back out to find Elliot Smith standing with his back to her. And when he turned around, she saw he had a kitchen knife sticking out of his chest. Oh, my. He'd stabbed himself in the heart. What? Fuck. Did you not know that was how he died? No. Because it was common knowledge at the time of his death. No. I had no clue. And if I did know this, erased from the hard drive. Wow. So despite emergency surgery, he was pronounced dead 20 minutes after arriving at the hospital Fuck. and he was 34 years old. Chiba later said Smith seemed particularly upset that morning and their petty fight had tipped him over the edge. Michelle, it's an extremely painful and violent way to die. It's not a cry for help. There's no coming back from that. That's just my take. I think so too. He'd been obviously talking about it for a long time. It seems like it was a spur of the moment thing, but a long time coming, if that makes sense. Well, you would think so, because despite Elliot Smith being so open about suicide, mm. rumours swirling around after his death actually said that it was in fact murder. A what? She killed him? possibly that allegedly allegedly they all came out and said different things like friends fans everybody had something to say about it yeah. some friends said that in fact he hadn't kicked the drugs and that his relationship was far from rosy the org records website released a statement just after his death comparing the relationship between jennifer chiba and elliot smith to that of sid vicious and nancy spongen what? which is really unfortunate because sid vicious stabbed nancy spongen to death in 1978 oh so God. that might have been a touch inflammatory then there was another guy and a club owner called mark flanagan who wondered whether smith had actually taken his own life and he said I don't believe the guy stabbed himself in the chest. It just doesn't add up. I wouldn't be surprised if someone else did this. He was doing drugs with low-life scum. He was around a lot of creepy people, some very negative, dangerous people. His friends, on the other hand, Michelle, angrily disputed this, knowing that he had cleaned up his act. Yeah. His website message board was blowing up with theories. Yeah. Uh, most of them probably pointing the finger at Jennifer Cheaper, I would say. Toxicological tests revealed that... Elliot Smith was apparently clean of illegal drugs huh. at the time of his death. Amazing. Only non-abusive amounts of antidepressants and medication for ADD were found in his system and an open verdict was recorded. Okay, fair enough. The court doc stated, while his history of depression is compatible with suicide and the location and direction of the stab wounds are consistent with self-infliction several aspects of the circumstances as they are known at this time are atypical of suicide and raise the possibility of homicide Fuck. so it's very up in the air murky the report said that smith had been stabbed twice hmm. Both wounds had entered his chest cavity. How do you stab yourself twice in the chest? That is a red flag for me because you think about that. Mm. Uh, uh, you're not doing it twice. To do it once is against every single instinct in your body. But anyway, one of those stab wounds perforated his heart. Mm. This in itself, though, they go on to say here that that in itself is not suspicious. As gruesome as it sounds, suicides who choose to stab themselves to death frequently jab the weapon in their chest several times. Oh, Elliot Smith, however, had no hesitation wounds and had stabbed himself through his clothing. That was mentioned a few times, and I don't know what the relevance is about the clothing. Well, I mean, I guess he didn't prepare himself like in some kind of ritual. No, it was spur of the moment. And he didn't want her to know, because that's why he's keeping his shirt on, maybe. I mean, I, I wouldn't think you'd take your shirt off to stab yourself. Well, some friends said that you wouldn't catch him ever without his shirt on. Right. He would never take his shirt off. It was claimed that Chiba's reported removal of the knife from Elliot Smith and subsequent refusal to speak with detectives were all of concern. And an apparent suicide note had been found by Chiba as well, written on a post-it note, and it said, I'm so sorry, love Elliot, God forgive me. So detectives concluded that this death is possibly suspicious. However, circumstances are unclear at this time. Has it ever been reopened, re-looked at? Not that I could find out. And looking back and reading some interviews with Jennifer Cheba, she did say that although she had not been 
charged or questioned over the allegations, she felt she was now a suspect in the eyes of the public. Well, yeah. I mean, she's the only one in the room. Just from that fact alone. According to Sean Organ, the Happy Ending website had to be totally and utterly taken down because so many people were using it to send death threats to Jennifer (gasps) Chiba. Oh my God, that's horrible. Not fair if she was not responsible, really. I mean, everyone getting involved like that. Look at us talking about it. I know, bad. It's nice to remember his music. It's just a shame that the circumstances of his death were so murky. I didn't realise how murky it was. No, me either. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that album. Elliot's family actually supported an investigation to determine the actual circumstances of his death. And in the intervening 21 years, there have been no announcements or arrests made. Okay. That I could see. Nothing on public record anyway. Okay, so it is as it is. That's exactly it. People who knew Jennifer Chiba say she wouldn't hurt a fly and was sweet and watchful and affirming with Elliot Smith and helped in his rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. But there were another set of friends who didn't think so highly of her and they blamed her for his death. She says, I was the scapegoat, the easy target. Nobody wants to blame a beautiful, intelligent, talented guy like Elliot for his own problems. So let's blame the girl that he likes. It's a little bit Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain as well. Everybody blames Courtney. Yeah, that's right. She had something to say about this as well, but I'm not going to repeat it on here. You have to Google what Courtney Love thinks about this whole affair. Okay. As referenced in his songs, Elliot Smith had a troubled childhood and he claimed that his stepfather abused him. But after receiving a letter of apology from his stepfather just before a performance at the Oscars in 1998, he found he no longer had an outlet for his anger. Oh. He felt that his stepfather had actually been remorseful. Exactly. Jennifer Chibbard then said that he had once confided in her when she was just a friend, saying that he'd wanted to kill himself many times but didn't want his mother to get a phone call one day saying that he'd done it. So he was going to commit socially acceptable suicide, the slow one, alcohol and drugs, because he knew that would eventually destroy him. Right. And when they were together, she said he'd begun to remember traumatic things from his childhood, but she didn't want to go into details. Another friend who was very much a part of his life towards the end of it was Modest Mouse's Steve Perringer. And he said that Elliot was an all or nothing kind of guy who would cane the drugs one day, then completely come off it overnight. And due to the amount of meds that he was on, coming off an intense combination of anti-seizure, antidepressants, ADD meds, etc., that would affect the equilibrium of his mental health. Yeah. So those are the sort of things that might even send you down that route, I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. A month before he died, Jennifer Chiba tells the effects of him going cold turkey. She said, I came home from seeing Lost in Translation and he was lying in the bed with his arm bleeding. He had seven old cigarette burns on his arm. It was evidence of the pain from that period, the heroin and crack days she's referring to, that was just a little too real. So he'd taken a knife to it. (gasps) It was on a Friday. So we went to the doctor on Monday and found out that he'd abruptly stopped taking one of his medications. It's so dangerous. It throws you off balance. You can't just go off that. So from then on, I got a pill organizer with the days of the week and I would administer the meds. That's not a girlfriend. That's a nurse. Many of Elliot Smith's closest friends at the time of his death agreed that his depression, alienation, self-loathing and drug use were symptoms of an underlying trauma and the fact that Smith died sober did not surprise them. They say Elliot Smith was not suffering from a drug problem, but he was searching for a drug solution. And that is the tragic story of the talented Elliot Smith. Thank you, but... Really heartbreaking. Really sad, yeah. But it makes you want to listen to his records and remember the sort of person that he was. Because even though you say, you know, he was known as Mr. Misery, actually it's that juxtaposition of very beautiful music with kind of dark lyrics. And I always really like that. So I'm going to go listen to EXO on my headphones after this podcast. Great. Real life. Real life. True Surprising that you chose a suicide for your story today because there's a little question mark over that with the subject of my story today. But before I get into that, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Were you an In Excess fan? When I was 14. Okay, a fan. Well, I loved 
what was the album? Was it Shabu Shabar or oh, there was one of the albums? Uh, the, what was the one? It's a, it's the swing like a pendulum. Oh yeah, I would have said that I was not a fan, but when I was doing the research for this. I realised I knew almost every fucking word to every song. Don't change a word. Yeah. Don't change a thing for me. Yeah, they had some tunes, but then they fell off the edge. A bit like U2. I loved U2 back in the early days, and then I went right off them. I think maybe I should say we're talking about Michael Hutchins today. Lead singer of In Excess. Got that. And also, too, do you know what? There could be some younger listeners who don't know or even remember Michael Hutchins. Maybe their parents were fans. Of of his music, I don't know, but we'll get into that. We'll start with a little bit about him. Michael Kelland Hutchins was born 22nd January 1960 in Sydney, Australia, to parents Kelland Hutchins and Patricia Hutchins. Uh, The dad was apparently a champagne merchant. Fancy. And he was always traveling a lot. Yeah, a bit fancy. They were always having dinner parties and fancy people around. Michael's early years, you know, saw him move from Brisbane to Hong Kong. In 1972, the family moved back to Sydney, settled in Belrose, which I had to look up because where the fuck is Belrose in New South Wales? Did not know. It's kind of a no man's land that is over the Harbour Bridge, but inland from the northern beaches. On acreage, perhaps. I don't think so. No. I No, I don't think he was well off. He went to a normal high school and that's where he met Andrew Farris, who later became a founding member of the band In Excess. Now, Andrew was already in a band called Dr. Dolphin. Oh, God. That makes me <laughs> really? think of a little dolphin like on the lower tummy hip area, like a just badly drawn dolphin tattoo. Like a tat? Yeah. I've got a dolphin tat. I don't know. I was like thinking, duck, 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 the dolphin. <laughs> duck, 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 duck. Uh, Michael was not in the band. He was just mates with Andrew Farris. Okay. He was the dancer on the side like Bez, was he? <laughs> Old snake hips. Do you know what? I actually think he was a bit of an introverted kid. A sensitive, quiet, shy kid who was with kind of the cool guy who was in a band. And he was just hanging around at rehearsals waiting for his friend to finish. One day, I don't know why, but the singer wasn't there. And Andrew, just for a laugh, said, oh, you know, can you just step in and sing until the singer gets here? And of course, Michael starts singing. He blew them away. Well, he's got an incredible voice. I actually Mm -hmm. think, having re-listened to quite a lot of In Excess over the last few days, (laughs) I was actually shocked by how beautiful his voice is they asked him to join dr dolphin so he did and uh, (laughs) on one condition you change the fucking name to in excess which is even more stupid the thing is that after after dr dolphin and you know he joined and there were a few different lineups because obviously dr dolphin didn't stick they were called the farris brothers because they had some other guys You know, join Tim Farris, Andrew Farris, John Farris, all brothers, Michael Hutchins, Kirk Pengilly, Gary Beers. Yeah. I didn't realise this, but actually the Farris brothers, after Dr. Dolphin, made their first debut performance, Whale Beach. Mm. It's all, all whales and dolphins here. Yeah. In 1977. Blimey, that's young. A long time ago. That's in Sydney, Australia. Then after the Farris family moved to Perth, came back band was put on hold 1979 the band got together was told to come up with a snappy name like xtc oh who told them that they had some kind of manager guy who was interested Uh, and said you got to get rid of that name okay dr dolphin had already gone but it was farris brothers no one's no one's chanting that they're like yeah xtc is really cool so they (laughs) came up with yeah in excess in 1980, they recorded their first song, Simple Simon. Do you remember that? That sounds like an XTC song. Simon. Dum, 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 dum. It was absolutely fantastic. Super new wave. Is it ba 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 da ba da ba da No, shabba brother, just keep walking. That was down the line. Simple Simon was, I'll put a link to it and you can watch the vid. He is fucking gorgeous and I have never ever fancied Michael Hutchins he was never my kind of thing but he had great style he had the moves like Jagger the song is great I'll link it up it actually didn't do very well for them and the next song they released was Just Keep Walking 
you got it, which did chart in the top 40. And, you know, they were away then. Look, you know, in all of these videos, he is just, he's young, he's gorgeous, he's charismatic, he's got that amazing voice, smart lyrics. I was really surprised by how I'd just forgotten how kind of amazing he was in those early years. You can see why they became so huge and why Michael became such an international rock star because he just had it, you know, it, whatever it is. You know, he's mesmerizing. And, you know, more than that, he, you know, he had the talent. He was brilliant lyricist, great singer, fantastic performer, good looking to boot. Then in 1981, they released the album Underneath the Colours. I don't remember that, but that was the big hit of that record, along with Stay Young. Stay Young, just this once. Yeah, beautiful song. My first band at high school covered that. I was the bass player. Oh, really? I was the singer in my high school band, and we did Everybody Wants to Rule the World. (laughs) Oh, that's the classic too. (laughs) And that did okay for them. But they were just road pigs, you know, they just toured relentlessly and they were building up their following. By 1982, they'd released Shabu Shaba, which you mentioned earlier. I didn't really know the singles off this, but I did look at one of the singles called The One Thing. And again, Michael's Mm. gorgeous. There's this video, they're all at a dinner party with all these stunning girls, including Michelle Bennett who was his girlfriend at the time. And we talked about her because she was the producer of Mr. Inbetween. And she was also the ex-girlfriend who had the t-shirt that Flame Fortune wore. And by the way, the reason I even decided to look at Michael Hutchins was because of the Flame Fortune episode. I thought, I'm going to look at Michael. So this video, Geordie, you've got to watch it because the hair... The makeup. It is, is it buffy? Classic. It is. It's so buffy. You wouldn't believe it. Just huge, big teased hair. And yeah, it, wow. I just had so much fun watching all these vids. And then The Swing came out in 1984. The Swing, that's it. Things started going crazy for them then. Yeah. They had Original Sin, yes. which was huge. Dream I, on white girl, white girl. Original Sin. I sent a message. Yep. I sent a message. Hope, Hope it gets through. through. Burn for you. I don't remember that one. Till my head at the sun. Da, 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 da. No. Love me and I'll burn for you. Right. All massive hits in Australia. I don't know how big they were with that album outside of Australia, but 1985, Listen Like Thieves comes out. And that's when things really do go to the next level for the band. There was obviously Listen Like Thieves. They go to the next level, loads of hits. Then there was Kick, which went ballistic all over the world. Six times platinum, huge singles, you know, Kick. Wow. Some kind of Kick. International, new sensation. International. Devil Inside, Never Tear Us Apart, Need You Tonight, massive all over the world. This was the peak of their success. All the faves. And actually, I did read that apparently the record company hated that album when the band presented it to them and said, we will give you a million dollars not to release release this garbage. (laughs) Yep. It's too dancey. No one will buy it. It'll destroy your career. Well, in your face, Warners, because it blew up all over the world. And there were other albums, X, which had Suicide Blonde, that was Elegantly Wasted. But that's where I'll leave it with In Excess because that was kind of the band. Huge. He became an international rock star. And sex symbol. And then obviously quite the um, the media darling as well. He was in the papers all the time in the 90s here in the UK. Oh, he was. I mean, you know, he was a hedonist. He loved his drugs. He loved women. He was a sensualist. He loved partying. He loved being a rock star. But I did read essentially he was an introvert who didn't like being alone. And as one of the biggest rock stars on the planet at that time, he had a string of high-profile relationships, including with Kylie Minogue, Helena Christensen, who was a huge supermodel back in the 80s and 90s. You know, he was playing to sold-out Wembley crowds. This is like the peak of his success. But a few years later, wound up dead in a Sydney hotel room. Like the way that it got to that was awful. But I will talk about in 1992, Michael had a couple of weeks break from a crazy schedule and went to see his girlfriend, Helena Christensen, who is Danish in Copenhagen. 
And after a night of partying, Helena and Michael, I think they, you know, had a few drinks and they decided that they wanted to get pizza. They jumped on their bikes. Obviously, Michael, a little bit drunk, got the pizza, were riding their bikes home and he stopped in the middle of a street. And I think it was a one-way narrow street in Copenhagen. And a taxi came. Michael, maybe in a bit of a dick move, but also maybe just because he was drunk, just didn't get out of the way, refused to get out of the way of this taxi. And the driver got out and punched him so hard that his head smashed into the curb and knocked him out. This is a quote from Helena. She says, he was unconscious and there was blood coming out of his mouth and ear. I thought he was dead. From that moment on, Michael's personality changed. And that he had gone from being kind of joyful and sweet to just being really dark and angry all the time. And he lost his sense of taste and smell. He became aggressive and angry all the time. He just became a not nice person. And that was the complete opposite to what he'd been apparently. Because apparently before he'd been Mm. quite sweet and nice and thoughtful and wrote poetry and was just an an introverted guy who happened to be a rock star, you know. Yeah. By October, he hadn't really recovered, but they started rehearsals for the next album in the south of France, and the band immediately saw that he was a different person. He was just being a dick to everyone, shagging loads of models, taking drugs, but in a kind of nasty way. And the band freaked out, moved the whole recording to the Amalfi Coast, got him isolated. He hated it. He was angry, smashing shit up. It wasn't good. He even threatened to stab the bassist at one point. Oh my goodness. And they're all such good friends. Exactly. The band took a month long break for Christmas. And when they returned, Michael had seemingly returned to normal, but he wasn't normal. He had quite severe brain damage that nobody knew about. And this only came out after his death because he didn't want anyone to know. Wow. Pin that because I think that maybe explains a lot of his behavior that came afterwards because unsurprisingly after that punch to the head it was kind of the beginning of the end for Michael and 18 months later in 94 I think you might dispute this I think he was kind of making bad relationship decisions because seeing Paula Yates who also had drug problems was bipolar unstable and married didn't do much for him in terms of finding somebody stable who could deal with this brain damage that he wasn't telling anyone And it was fraught, that relationship was just fraught with so much scandal and upset and arguments and with Bob Geldof and the children involved. It was awful. And I did tell you, didn't I, that during that period, Mm. you know that I have been in Michael Hutchins' apartment in Kings Road in Chelsea. No. Well... When he and Paula were together, they swapped house, famously swapped houses so that they could stay in the family home and care for the children, which left Michael's little apartment, which was the strangest place. It was like completely one great big space, but it was divided up into living room, kitchen. First floor was a main bedroom with an ensuite. And then the top floor was kind of like a studio area, but it was all kind of open up one side of the house, if you see what I mean. Okay. It was weird. It was very modern. One half, like the front half of the house was all kind of like see-through glass, opaque bricks. Like a dollhouse. Well, not like a dollhouse, more modern than that, like a gallery or Mm. something. And Bob Geldof and his then-girlfriend, Jeanne Marine, who's now his wife, from Braveheart, had moved in there. When I worked at Mulberry, Bob Geldof was a really good friend of the owner of Mulberry, Roger Saul. And we were doing a uh, photo shoot for OK Magazine for Jeanne Marin, a cover shoot in that place. But it looked too modern. Mm. So we had to turn it into like an oldie worldie draped hunting, shooting, fishing. Lodge. Brocard and <laughs> tapestry laden. So we we're on the bed and we were stapling fabrics and all sorts. Yes, we spent a whole day there in Michael Hutchins's apartment. Well, it sounds like lots of fun and it sounds like, yeah. you know, 
a great day. Thing is, it was not a great time for Michael because, as you said, in and out of the press, and they turned on him big time. As you said earlier, he'd been adored at his peak. The press lapped up all of his romances and he couldn't do anything wrong. And then he was torn down and so was Paulie Yates. Oh, for sure. She was a homewrecker. He was too. And in March 1995, I mean, I guess just sick of the paps and the tabloids, Michael punched a photographer in London and was arrested and charged with assault. And the next 18 months was a mix of kind of tragedy and joy for Michael because in August 96, Paula gave birth to Heavenly Harani Tiger Lily, who is Michael's only child. And he apparently was over the moon to be a dad. But that happiness didn't last long because, as you will remember, famously... Paula's nanny, who was looking after Pixie, Peaches and Fifi, the worst porn names you can ever give your kids. (laughs) The nanny was looking after the kids. Michael and Paula were in Australia and the nanny apparently found opium in a Smarties packet at Paula's house and went to the police. Oh, Michael and Paula say the drugs were planted, allegedly by Bob Geldof, who wanted custody of the kids. And although Paula was arrested, she wasn't charged. But Bob was granted temporary custody of the three eldest kids that were biologically his, which devastated Paula and Michael. But the band during this time, they were doing okay. They had Tiger Lily, you know, Michael and Paula. So things were okay. They were touring South Africa, Europe, sold out crowds. His career was going great. Despite that horrible time, and you will probably remember this, where... He was presenting an award at the Brits to Oasis. Yes, Oasis were pricks to him. Liam was a bit of a dick, but then it was really Noel who said, when they won, well, he said, oh, has-beens shouldn't be presenting awards to gonna-bees. <laughs> so full of themselves, those Oasis guys, aren't they? Fucking dicks. And apparently that really hit Michael hard. It, you know, it wasn't nice. But he was cool about it on stage. Then they released an album. They were doing really well. They went back to Australia to do a 13-show tour of Oz and start recording to mark their 20th anniversary of In Excess, which 20 fucking years. It's a long time. So on November 21, 97, the band went to Sydney to rehearse for the upcoming tour, which was going to start two days later. Apparently, he was in great spirits. He was joking around. He was being fun. He was cracking jokes. The next morning, when Michael was late getting to the studio for rehearsals, no one thought anything of it because Kurt Pengilly, who played guitar and sax in In Excess, had gotten a drunken answering machine message from Michael around 11 o'clock the night before saying, hey, come to the hotel, come hang with me. So they all just thought, oh, he's like got drunk and that's why he's late. So the band were hanging around in the studio waiting for Michael turned on the telly to watch the cricket and just like a bad B-grade movie, the cricket was interrupted by a news flash saying that Michael Hutchins was dead. Oh, my God. Is that how they found out? Yeah, that's how they found out. Oh, my Lord. And Kurt Pengilly just said you would never had an inkling that something like that was going to happen. Obviously, famously, Michael was found naked in his hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton in Double Bay, his snakeskin belt around his neck hanging from his hotel room door. Now, Paula Yates refused to believe it was suicide. She just said there is no way he would kill himself and leave her and Tiger. And she went to the media and she was the one that said it was autoerotic asphyxiation gone asphyxiation. wrong. Asphyxiation. Oh, she was the one that suggested yep. that. Yeah, she said, oh, you know, we'd had sex games and that's what's happened. Well, the coroner did a report and deemed it suicide But who knows? There was no suicide note. There was nothing. But, you know, he was full of alcohol, cocaine, Prozac, prescription drugs. So I don't know if it was a sex game gone wrong and if he wanted to die. Or just a really bad decision. But he did have some really chaotic phone calls in in the last few hours. He'd called Bob Geldof to yell at him because he blocked Paula from bringing Tiger Lily to visit him. And Bob Geldof actually went to the police saying that Michael was abusive and threatening in that phone call. But, you know, he was as high as fuck on all those drugs. So maybe he was. He then tried to call his personal manager, Martha Traup, and left a voicemail saying, Marth, Michael here. 
I fucking had enough. Now, we don't know if that was with life, with Bob, with whoever. The last phone call he made was to ex-girlfriend Michelle Bennett, where he begged her, please come and see me. So that was at 9.54 in the morning. By 10.40 a.m., she was there at Double Bay, Brits Carlton, knocked on the door. He didn't answer. So she left. She was like, fuck, where is he? Why? Just confused. Then an hour later, his body was discovered by a hotel maid who couldn't open the door. He was 37. And one of the reasons I wanted to go right back into the history of In Excess is because I wanted you to remember how many hits they had over 20 years. Fucking loads. And back then, you could make money in the music industry from sales, from radio play, from publishing, which publishing is the money you get if you're the songwriter and you've written the songs. And he was, you know, he was the lyricist. So he definitely had a massive share of the publishing of all of those in excess tunes. And he made a fucking fortune over his career. And at the time of his death, I believe he was estimated to be worth 20 million, which in the 90s big fucking sure thing shit ton of money even now but apparently he died penniless with 506 bucks australian dollars in cash on him and 572 dollars in a shared bank account don't know who that shared bank account is with which brings me to the mystery part of today's story okay where the fuck did all the money go right in 96 a year before he died Apparently, Michael had drawn up a will that bequeathed 500000 of his estate to Amnesty and Greenpeace. So he thought that he had enough to be able to make some charitable donations. Yeah, quite hefty ones too. Yep. Then he left 50% of his money to be split between his mum, his dad, his brother, his half-sister and Paula, who, as an aside, died from, I think it was a heroin overdose. Yes, it was. In yeah. the year 2000, Tiger Lily was in the room. So the remaining 50% of his estate was left to Tiger Lily and she was going to inherit everything when she turned 21. And after Michael died, his barrister, Andrew Young, who drafted that will, said, Michael told me his main concern was for Tiger Lily and that he had structured his financial affairs to help her. But despite making this will that showed how he wanted his money to be divided... As I said before, it's been claimed that he died basically penniless. That's weird. And in 2017, Colin Diamond, who was Michael's business manager, spoke out to the media to say that all of Michael's money had been eaten up by partying, gifts, and huge legal bills. Thing is, Michael's sister, Tina, believes that Michael had owned properties in London, the one you probably went to, France. He had a chateau in France. Loads of people had been to that. Hong Kong. Indonesia and in Australia and loads of people have been to these properties it wasn't just oh on paper he owned them but after he died an investigation into his financial affairs discovered that these homes were controlled and I don't really know if that means owned by companies but not Michael but these companies were called Nexus, Next Circle and League Work. Thing is No one can find out who owns these companies and even if they're still active and who the fuck even set them up. So it's alleged that Michael put his trust in a team of financial advisors and signed over loads of his assets to various holding companies in order to protect himself from basically money vampires and to indemnify himself from third party claims. I think he was worried about paternity things popping up and also he didn't want to pay tax so he had offshore accounts holding companies trusts and they all held various assets including the rights to his intellectual property i.e his songs yeah but it turns out that michael hutchins was not the beneficiary of these trusts meaning in effect he gave everything away that he owned to whoever owned the trusts. That's what that means. So he was, according to his financial advisors, technically bankrupt when he died. Wow. Because on paper, he owned literally nothing. And in fact, anything he did or could have done in the future, including writing songs, being in movies, whatever, as soon as he did them, those things didn't belong to him. What? Because of this contract. 
How bizarre. I mean, that's a thing. With in excess's record sales exceeding 60 million and counting, mm. he's still a cash cow. Yeah, the money should still be flowing in. Except no one in his family, including Tiger. Tiger hasn't seen a penny. No one in his family has ever seen a penny because after his death, it was claimed that the publishing rights and the royalties from his music and record sales were not included in his estate. According to lawyer Andrew Paul, who was an executor of the will, everything was tied up in a complicated series of trusts designed to protect him from divorce, tax. But in 2017, a series of leaked documents were made public, which suggested that Michael's business manager, who I mentioned earlier, Colin Diamond, was the ultimate beneficial owner of everything. (gasps) What a prick. Michael's estate, everything. And according to ABC's Four Corners program, who did a whole expose on this, Colin and a music entrepreneur called Ron Creevy had set up offshore companies in Mauritius in 2015 called Helipad Plane just before the 20th anniversary of Michael's death, which claimed oh. it had rights to exploit sound recordings, images, film, anything related to Michael Hutchins. Not good guys. Colin Diamond first became involved with Michael in Hong Kong when he started putting Michael's assets into complicated offshore trusts to avoid tax in the 80s and 90s. And then he put Michael's music rights in a British Virgin Islands company called Chardonnay Investments. That's not even a fucking joke. And that is a dodgy fucking clue right there. Chardonnay Investments. Chardonnay. 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 Cheers to that. No, sir, because (laughs) there are documents which include an email from a Singaporean lawyer called Malcolm Lin, who was acting for Colin Diamond. And the email says that all intellectual property rights in Michael Hutchinson's estate belong to Chardonnay Investments and therefore belong to Colin Diamond, who became Chardonnay Investments' sole owner after Michael died. This is how you can get fucked up up and end up with nothing. He apparently said the reason for this is that Colin Diamond was a trusted friend of Michael Hutchinson's and because of that and the fact that Michael had various family issues, don't know what they are. I know he didn't have a great childhood, but still, he still had a great relationship with his sisters and brothers and parents. This lawyer, this Singaporean lawyer is saying because Michael had various family issues, he left Colin Diamond to deal with the assets of Chardonnay. Now, dealing with the assets is one thing. Keeping all the fucking money is another. Entirely, exactly. How rude. So Michael's late mother, because she died died, a few years back, Patricia, apparently did try to untangle what the fuck had happened in the Queensland Supreme Court and did name Colin Diamond, saying, you've got to look into this guy. But they couldn't unravel Mm. it. They could not follow the money. It was too complicated for that Supreme Court in Queensland to handle. So, because there were Gold Coast properties, there's, like I said, the villa Mm -hmm. in France, house in Chelsea, a development in Lombok, all supposedly owned by Michael. But after his death, conveniently, those ownership rights could never be properly established. So, who's in those things now? Well, probably fucking Colin Colin Diamond. Diamond. Who knows? And there was a settlement of ownership rights over a couple of yeah. things by the family. The family got 500000 didn't even cover oh the court my costs. God. So they ended up out of pocket yeah. trying to follow the money. Then in 2005, Patricia was told by a law firm that Michael's estate was worth zero. But who's getting all the royalties, Geordie? In 2008, apparently Michael Hutchinson's share of the rights to Inexcess's yeah. music was sold for millions. Well, the proceeds went Colin to dun, 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 Chardonnay oh, Investments, God. who is Colin Diamond. Like I said, Tiger Lily has never seen a penny of her dad's money. That feels so unfair, doesn't it? Yeah, she was living in a squat in London because she was broke. Mm. She had nothing. So the upshot here is no one knows any fucking thing about any of it. More than the money, was it suicide? Was it a conspiracy? Who stole the money? Right. Was the money something to do with all this? Okay. It's a sad and horrible end to a brilliant talent yeah. and just tragic. 
Wow, thanks, Michelle, for that. It's really quite tangled, isn't it? It is. Tangled and tragic. It just makes you realise you need to trust people who are looking after your money. You've got to make a bulletproof will that nobody can fuck around with. But, I mean, Michael, he didn't live to see how badly it went wrong for his loved ones because there's no way he would have left nothing to that child so so that's all i got for you well that's amazing michelle thank you so much and thank you for your in-depth expose on colin diamond and the life and times of michael hutchins it's fascinating honestly i'll put a lot of links up to the songs because it was a joyful look back at a band that i wasn't really a fan but i loved watching everything back again it was wonderful did you have a little skip around the living room a little bit of a a bounce about i've been humming around everybody's down on their knees i've been singing shit (laughs) I didn't even remember. I knew all those lyrics. It was amazing. And thank you for your sensitive coverage of Elliot Smith's suicide. And I'll be listening to his music too. Yeah, you can go and pop a few of his records on later as well and reminisce. Reminisce. Gone but not forgotten, both of them. R.I.P. Michael, R.I.P. Elliot and R.I.P. to the end of this podcast. (laughs) R.I.P. to this podcast just for the time being. We will be back next week because as you know, we keep returning. We have not had a day off, Michelle, have we? We have not. Exhausted, but happy. So whatever you do, wherever you are, just, just keep, keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.